Hi everyone, welcome back to Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you again from uh, from my home here in quarantine. And I am joined today, very special guest. I'm very excited about this, this episode. I'm joined by Stefan van der Stiegel, professor of cognitive psychology at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, director of the Attention Lab there, author of Two books, How Attention Works and the newly released Concentration, both from from MIT Press. And today we're going to be talking primarily about this first book, How Attention Works. It's received a ton of critical praise, praise from the Washington Post, um, which aptly said that it's packed with information about how the brain navigates in a complex visual world. So I want to welcome to the podcast, Professor Vanderstiegel. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I'm thinking, I'm wondering if we can start by kind of defining what attention actually is. And you mentioned in the book that this is, this is a hard thing to actually do, but, and some of us have a, some preconceived notions about attention that might be might be different from what you talk about in the book. So could you just talk a little bit about how you define and how psychologists, scientists define our attentional capacity? So there are many different types of attention, but I generally focus on sensory attention. Uh, and I think this is also most important to the podcast that you're doing. So we are, I think our brain and our eyes are bombarded with sensory information. And are we mostly talking about, in my examples, of the visual domain, but many of these rules also apply to uh, the auditory domain. But, let, but let, let's consider vision for now. We're bombarded with visual information. The moment you open your eyes, there's a lot of information projected on the retina. And the brain cannot process all that information. It doesn't even have to do that. It makes a selection. It, and that selection is what we call attention. So you focus your attention on a certain part of the input, and that's the information that's processed further. And all the other information is just largely ignored. And the information that's attended is the information that's processed, and that's also the information that you can consciously report or that can influence your behavior. And information that's not attended, as I said, is, is simply ignored. And the brain has to make the decision, and we make this decision the whole time. And in, the, in literature, we always talk about the attentional spotlight. And I like that analogy. It's sort of spotlight that travels through space and highlights certain information and sort of not, uh, and, and, and thereby ignoring other information. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that because you, you mentioned several times, at the, at the beginning of the book, you talk about how um, our attention, our attention doesn't pick up all of the details around us. And you mentioned this famous gorilla example where, um, which probably a lot of people have seen the video of where you don't necessarily notice this gorilla that walks onto the scene, but you were saying that this is not actually, uh, it's a seemingly kind of inefficient or ineffective process, but actually our attention is, very concerned with efficiency and only using the details that are are pertinent to us. I'm I, I'm I'm gleaning from the from the book. Yeah, that's correct. 
it's actually a solution to a huge problem. Um, if it would process all the information that's that's out there, uh, our brain perhaps should have been 10 to 15 times larger. <laughs> it would take a lot of processing power. And already realize that one third of the cortex is involved in processing visual information. Uh, so it has to make a selection because processing visual information is demanding. And if you would process all the information into depth that's being presented on the retina, that's a huge problem. So it evolution has equipped us with a solution, and actually it, the attention is the solution. And as you said, in many examples in which the brain is tricked, it's considered sort of a weakness. Oh, we are we are only aware of very limited amount of information in your environment, but consider a situation in which that would not be the case. Consider patients who complain that they can no longer filter information of the outside world. They are they're running into a lot of problems. When I did my bachelor's degree, it was a long time ago, I did it in artificial intelligence. And I went to these Robocop games, and these were these soccer games in which robot teams compete to each other. And what happened is these robots were standing still forever. And the reason for this is that they were processing all the information that was projected on the camera. That took 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 very long time mm. before all that information was actually processed. And we are not like cameras. We are we are selective machines that only select part of the information and the information that's relevant. And of course, we miss information. So by definition, we miss sometimes information. And I think the only thing we have to be sure of, and we have to make sure, is that we select the right information. And I think that can become a challenge in these days where there's a lot of distracting information that's perhaps not relevant. But if equipped well, and if your environment is equipped well, you are still able to select the right information. You know, that's, I, I find that very interesting because, of course, our podcast is called Attention to Detail, and a lot of the techniques that we used are centered on our attention, how to select what information that might be pertinent to us. And so it, as kind of a follow-up to what you were saying, can we, is it uh, the right way to think about attention as you, you mentioned the spotlight or another way of potentially thinking about it? I'm curious if this is, uh, this makes sense is that we have almost a certain number of units of attention that we can either choose to allocate or that reflexively get assigned from us. And uh, these units kind of, you mentioned there's sometimes where uh, our spotlight is larger and so we're perceiving a larger area but maybe fewer details. And other times we can hone in very closely on one thing but we're sacrificing uh details from from the larger scope is that is that a apt way of thinking about our attention or does it work in some other way yeah it's a limited resource so you have a limited amount of attention that you can allocate in the, to uh, to visual information and this means that if you look at details if you attend to details your attention spotlight becomes smaller and therefore sometimes people also compare it to the zoom lens uh, if you focus on details, your attentional spotlights become smaller. It's something called we call an attentional window. The attentional window becomes smaller the moment you focus on details. And therefore, because it's a limited resource, you can only focus on details for on a limited part of the world. 
If you want to have a bigger picture, uh, you zoom out, you make your attentional spotlight larger. This is a situation in which you don't get the details, but you get the general overview. Uh, but you cannot have both. You cannot focus on a lot of details one moment at a time. So if you increase your spotlight, the size of your spotlight, this comes with a cost. And the cost is that you now no longer focus on details. But generally, we're really flexible in switching between a smaller spotlight and a larger spotlight. So for instance, when you're reading, you make your attentional spotlight small because you want to focus on the individual words. But for instance, when you walk into a supermarket that you've never been in before, you first want to make your attentional spotlight large because you have no, you have no clue where your favorite pack of milk is. And then the moment you are standing in front of the, uh, the, the, the array where all the uh, uh, packs of milk are, you make your attention spotlight smaller and then you start focusing on the details. So depending on the task, you decide to either use a small or a large spotlight. Huh. And I'm curious, do you think, is does the sense of hearing work in a similar manner where we can listen to a large uh, auditory field around us or hone in on one or two sounds? Yeah, it's the same. So uh, it works in a similar way. So I think the spotlight there is not a good metaphor. Uh, I haven't come up with a better metaphor, or at least I haven't come across one. But it's definitely you can focus your auditory attention and you can have your being your auditory attention be more distributed. That's uh, so the zooming in and out works in a similar way, but I guess we have to come up with another analogy. Yeah, well, no, but I like, I love the spotlight idea and it's that, that zooming in and out is um, very important for, for some of the techniques on, on this podcast because we talk about both listening to music at a more macro or zoomed out, we might say, level. And then we also talk about really listening closely to a few, a few details. That's certainly my experience when I listen. And like you said, it's a limited resource that we'd all, I'm sure, like to have more uh, units of attention, but, but you have to choose when you zoom out and when you zoom in. And I wanted to, I wanted to ask you something else that you mentioned kind of early in the book. Um, you mentioned that we often like to stare at blank walls when we're thinking about something, which shuts off most of the visual information we're perceiving. And from my own personal experience, and it's something I occasionally advise people to do on the podcast, but I want to <laughs> check to make sure that this is a sensible thing to advise, but I often advise people to close their eyes when they're listening because for me, I've found that my, I don't know if my sense of hearing is more activated, but I'm better able to process what I'm hearing if my eyes are closed. Is that, are we also to a certain extent splitting our attention between sensory systems? Yes, yes. So if you think about attention as a limited resource, this means that you distribute your attention uh, between different sensory streams of information. Um, so it's supramodal, as we call it. And this means that the moment you open your eyes, uh, almost by definition, you start attending to that information. It's very difficult, it's possible, but it's difficult to not attend to information, visual information, while your eyes are open. 
especially if there are things moving. We haven't touched upon this yet, but there's a lot of information out there that automatically attracts our attention. So the moment somebody walks into the room or suddenly something else appears, this will automatically capture your attention. There's nothing you can do about it. When you receive a notification on your phone and you see it in your visual field, this will attract your attention. This has as evolutionary benefits. So this means that the moment you open your eyes, um, it might be possible that your attention is grabbed. And it's also the fact that there's always there's something moving. And that's why it's good to stare at a wall, because a blind wall, because normally there's nothing really happening there. Mm -hmm. So if you just walk across the street and you want to listen to music and you want to attend to auditory information, it's difficult because there's so much things going around when you have your eyes open. So if you want to make sure that you have all your attentional resources available to focus on auditory information, the best way is just to close your eyes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting... And one of the... I know a lot of people are not um, sold on this idea of the concert hall experience where you sit in silence and you go and commit yourself to sitting in a chair for two hours. Um, but there's a benefit to this, I think, which is that you're afforded a reduction in all of the distractions that could cap capture your attention. And maybe it, it directs, it allows you to allocate more of that spotlight to, to what you're hearing. And I wanted to, so I, you mentioned, I think this, this maybe relates these distractions that we automatically are drawn to, um, maybe relates to this other effect that you discuss in the book called the pop-out effect. Could you, would you explain to us a little bit about what this pop-out effect is, how it relates to our attention? Yes. So, um, Apparently, that's always, the, I, I like to use that word because it's sort of the outcome of the best evolutionary process because I, I still think that our sensory systems are equipped such that it's apparently the best way uh, to process information. We don't need to see all the colors. Apparently, that's not necessary. So apparently, it's required, and it's actually quite an easy story to think about why this is, that our attention is automatically captured by things that are novel. And this is what we call a pop-out. So imagine a screen in which there are only green items, uh, objects, and there's one red object. What then happens with your, with your attention spotlight is it automatically attracted to the red item. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about that. So when you're looking at a screen and suddenly something appears automatically, just by sudden onset, this will attract your attention. Even if you know something's gonna appear and you don't want to allocate your attention to that information, it will happen. Hmm. It's a reflex. And some people say that I'm distracted the whole time. I don't want this to happen. But actually you do. Because this is what made us survive, right? If you are walking on the street or in your, in your car, and suddenly there's somebody crossing the street that pops up in the visual field, you want this information to be picked up automatically. So without this, it will be almost impossible to be in traffic uh, or to walk on the streets or whatever. It's, uh, and if you're in a room and somebody suddenly enters that room, you want to pick up on that information automatically. So there's something built in our brains that makes sure that when something is new, something is different in terms of its color, its shape, its visual orientation, as we, as we call it, 
then this will create a pop-out and your attention is captured. This is a good thing, but unfortunately there are a lot of situations in which it's unnecessary. So we are typing and you're writing a text and you got an email notification on your screen. The same thing happens. And of course the brain doesn't know whether the thing, thing that's appearing is an email notification or is a child that's crossing the street mm-hmm. or is a snake that suddenly appears. <laughs> so the, the brain cannot disentangle that. Your, your attention is captured. And a lot of the situation we have distracting information that's completely unnecessary. And this will result in a situation in which you're no longer allocating your attention on the thing you were previously allocating your attention towards. So it's something we should, if we want to keep our attention in the right way, we have to make sure that there's, that there are no irrelevant distractors around it. Yeah, you know, this, this reminds me a little bit of um, the phenomenon of anxiety, which similarly seems to be an evolutionary phenomenon. And, you know, people many people deal with anxiety and it's an unpleasant thing to deal with, but the absence of anxiety, if we saw in like, I don't know if you've seen this movie free solo, but, uh, someone whose amygdala doesn't actually work. This can potentially be a really dangerous thing. So, and it seems like the pop out effect is almost a little bit of an off offshoot of, or related maybe to this fight or flight idea. Yes, yes, you need it. Yeah. Um, and um, it's something that cannot be suppressed. Of course, there are a lot of individual differences. So you don't want everything that's moving around you to capture your attention. There is a certain threshold. And for some people, this threshold is higher or lower. And of course, when it's too low, it becomes a problem. And it becomes that you are easily distracted, too easily distracted. Yeah. Um, however, I think a lot of people can relate to the situations where they are reading or listening very, very focused and then they miss out quite crucial information. So for instance, I'm now talking with a lot of focus and when my, suddenly my kid doesn't, would tap on my back, it would scare, it would scare me, you know, <laughs> sitting against the, ce- hit, hit the ceiling because, oh, there's apparently, there's something I missed and I should have picked up on it. So the threshold should be set at the right level. When it's too low, it means that you're distracted too easily. Everything distracts you, and that's a problem for focus. And when it's too high, it's 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 dangerous, right? So because then suddenly some some information might appear that you actually should have picked up on. Yeah. Well, this is so. When I was reading this pop out effect chapter, I was struck because in, in my job conducting. You know, one thing that you you deal with connecting is really hard. And one thing that you deal with constantly is the challenge to allocate your attention. Because when you're rehearsing an orchestra, there is so much information that hits you in a given moment, let alone trying to think about uh, how you're conducting yourself, what you're going to say, but just to process that information and... There are details. If you want to make sure everyone's playing the right notes, but also make sure everyone's playing the right rhythms, but also make sure everyone's playing musically, but also make sure everything is in tune. It's almost like there's there's too much to pay attention to. There's no way you can do that. And so your options are to try to zoom in and out really quickly and listen to basically individual instruments, which doesn't seem to work. 
but I'm curious to get your take what the, the, the solution that I have found. And I, I think most conductors gravitate towards not, not through conscious thought, but through necessity is creating basically a crystal clear mental concept in your mind of how you expect the music to go so that when there's any sort of aberration of any kind, whether it's a note, a rhythm, intonation, it almost has this pop-out effect that you, you've set up this, so to say, field of, of white tents in your mind, which is the piece, and then if there's a green tent, you will notice it. And that actually seems, in my experience, it's a pretty powerful effect and you can detect mistakes easily that way across a variety because you've almost commandeered this pop-out effect to your benefit. But I'm curious to hear if hear your take on that. Yeah, that's interesting because um, you, would all, you would almost call those violations of your expectations. And we know that these things are definitely attention-grabbing. Um, so you expect something to occur and then there's a huge difference in what you expect. And this is definitely something that will automatically capture your attention. And I think uh, if you would compare what you just described to a certain onset of a person entering the room, it's a change. So what the brain apparently does is it computes a change from uh, just an instant before. Mm -hmm. So is this situation stable or is something changing? And if something changing and that's above a certain value, then attention should go there, and then you could then you could almost compare attention to like a, like a change detector. And if the change is small, you don't detect it. But if it's large enough, then you detect it. That's why if you think about uh, wildlife, if a snake sneaks up to you, you don't notice it simply because the change is too small. Mm. But if a gorilla jumps out of a tree and standing in front of you, you will immediately detect it. So that means that, that this, this sort of de 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 determines uh, what will capture your attention. And when you, I think, I think everyone can relate to that, even if they're not so interested in music, but when you know, when you hear a song and you've heard it many times, and then all of a sudden something changes in that song to, to what you're used to, you will immediately pick up on it. So if you have a record on and the record is sticking on one particular note, everyone in the room, even if, you, even if you're not listening to the music, will notice something's going on with the music. All of a sudden, you're very aware of what's going on with the music in the room. And something's different, something is unexpected. So I think the violation of expectation is a very good idea. But I think it also requires training because it means that you have to know this piece extremely well in order to know, in order to note these small violations. So if you hear something for the, for the first time, of course, this cannot happen. So I think it does require a lot of training in order to know how is this going to sound um, in a few instances and what do I expect will occur? Uh, and of course, for expectations to occur, this requires learning. But you probably have noticed, have a better insight uh, in terms of music for this type of example than me. No, but I, it 100% uh, corresponds to my experience, which is that if I have the clearer mental conception I have of a piece, the more effective this phenomenon is, the more my expectations are jarred even when 
small details are off. And so the amount of preparation you put in often yields the greatest results. But I, I wanted to ask you that's because uh, you also have a chapter about our expectations um, and how, like you said, you know, the context of what uh, the context that has been set up for us, if we drive the same route every day and we know what this looks like, then we set up a, a set of expectations for how this is going to look and our attention can be affected accordingly. But you mentioned, so it probably takes a lot of training to get to the point where you can rehearse an orchestra, have this super clear idea of how the piece is going to go. But I was surprised that there were also, you mentioned some studies in this chapter that show that maybe it doesn't take that much priming yourself to make a significant difference in this, your kind of expectational context. And so even with just a little bit of, of priming your expectations, this can have a decently profound impact on your attention. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm thinking about these examples of studies on statistical regularities. So there have been some examples in the literature in which people are watching a computer screen in which there are objects appearing in a certain order. And the observers are not aware of this order explicitly. They're just told to look at a screen and respond to a certain letter when it appears and the letter appears in a certain order. When that order is violated, uh, so this is in experiments that last two to three hours, so not, not that long. When this expectation is violated, observers note this, so they, their response changes. And this is not by definition explicit. They might not be aware of the regularities. So when they're being asked afterwards, were there any, any regularities? Their answer is generally no, not that I'm aware of. But apparently the system does pick up on these type of statistical regularities in the environment. So it's definitely if you're attending to a stream of information and there is some regularity in that stream of information, your brain picks it up relatively quickly. But I think if you compare it to conducting an orchestra, that's perhaps requires a lot more training and understanding and knowing because these regularities are relatively simple uh, if you would compare it to an orchestra situation. But it's definitely possible to pick up on different statistical regularities. The more complex they become, the longer they would require training. But it's interesting that the fact that this is relatively unconscious, you are not aware of these regularities. If you're asked about them, it might be difficult for you to actually report it. Huh. Well, so the reason, part of the reason why I'm curious about this is this reading this gave me a, a hypothesis that I wanted to ask you about, which is if it doesn't take too much priming to make a, a, a difference in our, a significant difference in our, the, the way our attention works in this way with uh, our expectations and the context we've set up, I'm curious if you think that listening to a piece of music before you go to a concert could have a tangible effect on re redefining this context for listeners so that it, it, it seems to me like potentially there's a, the, the idea of almost diminishing marginal returns when you listen to a piece where if you listen to it once, you get a huge amount of 
benefit for the second time you're going to listen to it because you've primed yourself. And then if you listen to it twice, you get more benefit. And for me, the, the 60th time versus the 61st time might not matter. But I'm curious if you think that because a lot of listening to uh, the more intricate details of a performance like performance decisions that the the musicians have made or uh, details of, of form, of things like that, they're kind of hard to hear the first time around. And so I'm wondering if if the listener prepares themselves, listens to the piece once or twice before, this might have some of that priming effect where they might have even subconsciously a few expectations about what's coming and it might impact the listening experience. But I'm curious, this might just not be not be the case. I'm curious what you think about this. No, I think it is. Um, I'm picking up examples of uh, where people are presented with a lot of scenes, so natural scenes, pictures of natural scenes. And uh, this, is, this is, well, presented to them extremely quickly. Uh, they're only presented like one, one second or even shorter. And then we know that we have a huge memory for this. So the moment you're being shown that same array of uh, scenes and they are combined with novel scenes, and then people are required to indicate which are novel and which are uh, already previously presented. Our memory is extremely large. Um, and even if you ask them, can you describe the scenes that you were presented, you might not be able to describe them. But we generally have a gist perception, as we call it, saying, yeah, I, I have seen this one before. So there is some memory. So listening to a musical piece one time generally creates already a memory, even if you might not be able to, to recollect it consciously. It's definitely stored somewhere. And I think a lot of people experienced it that, the heroes, that it's very difficult if you're being asked to start singing a song, uh, but the moment the song starts, you immediately start singing it. So apparently it's stored somewhere, but you don't have conscious access to it when, when you're not primed in a way. So a couple of notes can already bring back a memory that without these notes would be impossible to recollect. Yeah, that's... And I think... And I think it helps to sort of zoom in on the details, right? Because if you create some expectations, those can be violated. And I'm myself a big music lover, but I, I, I generally go to a lot of like uh, indie, indie rock shows. Mm -hmm. And there it's great to have listened to the album a couple of times, because then, uh, although it, there, there's some charm to hearing a song for the first time, just some recollection or understanding, hey, we see a different interpretation here, or here the, uh, this solo is new, you can actually better think about the decisions that are being made on stage. Again, you know that a part might be improvisation or not, so then you have at least some framework in which you can relate to what's happening on stage. Yeah, you know, that's fantastic. That's exactly what I'm hoping our listeners will will do when they when they go to a classical concert, because that's if we're thinking about the live performance element of uh, you know we have this interesting phenomenon in classical music that we have a score which always remains the same for hundreds of years and then we have live performance which is different every time we go to a concert and this element of live performance I think both both listening to the score but especially listening to a live performance as you say to catch new things, different things can be really primed by listening to the piece a few times 
beforehand. And I think it's a powerful thing that you said, because I'm sure this, I'm sure this differs between people. Some people have better musical memories. Some people have worse, but I imagine to a certain extent, this effect happens for everyone where it might not be the same amount of information, but everybody is probably storing some form of what they hear uh, if they're priming themselves in this way. Am I correct? Unless maybe they... Yeah, they are. Yeah. There are so many differences, but I think everyone's memory is, is really large for these type of things. Um, and I think musical memory is extremely interesting because it's so difficult to consciously recollect, but there's so much implicit information stored in the brain that's it's unimaginable how much it actually is. Yeah. Um, it's an incredible thing. You know, I... Um, one of my, my relatives has, you know, a late form of, of dementia. And one thing we've seen, which is so interesting, is that long after command of language and things like that have gone, there's still recollections of folk tunes and music. Um, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Um, I wanted to ask you to go back quickly to this attentional spotlight or the other term you used was the useful field of vision. Um, and I wanted to ask you, uh, about, you mentioned in this chapter that there are potentially ways that we can grow or develop our attentional field. And you also mentioned that this, this useful field of vision deteriorates with age and I have two questions for you. One is, what are some of these potential ways that we can grow this spotlight or develop it? And does this also relate to hearing? Are there potentially ways that we could grow our hearing spotlight that correlate to this, uh, the visual spotlight? And I guess a third question, <laughs> does, does the hearing spotlight do we know if the hearing spotlight deteriorates with age like the, like the visual spotlight? Yes, so let me first explain the uh, useful field of view development yeah. over time. So when kids uh, focus their attention in the world, they generally do it with a small spotlight. And I think everyone can relate to the situation in which they interact with a small kid and his favorite toy is lying just in front of them and they don't, they don't detect it. Well, you see it immediately, uh, and you think, "Hey, it's it's laying right over there." And the, picks, and the child just looks at it, looks at it, but doesn't pick up on it. This is this is a child looking with a small spotlight. It's nothing to do with the eyes, but it's the attentional spotlight. Over time, when you grow older and the frontal cortex develops, um, you get a larger spotlight. However, when you grow old again, <laughs> the elderly will notice that perhaps they're losing some of that spotlight, the large spotlight. And this is the moment your kids take takes your hand to cross the street because mom and dad is no longer looking around and misses the overview. Uh. Uh, so when you're 21, 23, you have a perfect switching between a small and a larger spotlight. But this generally decreases over time when you get older and older. But fortunately, this is one of the few things that actually brain training can resolve. So I'm very critical about brain training because it's very commercial. And there's extremely little scientific evidence to back it up. So generally, when you train a certain uh, cognitive function, you actually become better at the game. 
but it doesn't generalize to the real world. Uh-huh. So any any claims out there about brain training are generally nonsense, and it's mostly coming from commercial companies who just want to earn some money with some stupid app. Um, however, the only thing that I find actually is some scientific evidence for is the fact that you can train to keep your attentional spotlight large, larger. So when it starts to deteriorate, there are some useful field of view training sets out there, and I don't have any commercial interaction. Let me, let me, let me just be clear. I don't have any. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm not associated with a company, and I can send everyone the references so, uh, <laughs> who's interested in that. that there, there's some solid scientific studies. So that use of field of view is something that can be sort of maintained relatively when you become older. It cannot really be restored, but I think, uh, and this is important for people for driving. So a lot of people want to drive when they're older, and your large attention spotlight is really important for driving because you have to have an overview. So this is something that can be trained. These are called useful field of view training. If you Google it, you'll probably find some. Um, they're not very, they're not very complicated. It's just you training to pick up on the information that's presented in the peripheral visual field. Whether this develops an auditory in the same way, the auditory domain is really unknown. Uh, unfortunately, this the work on auditory perception is is not as large as field as the visual. Uh, conferences. So when you go to a visual conference, there are just more people attending than mm-hmm. when you go to an auditory conference. So I, I'm not aware of any study that has focused on the fact whether this uh, uh, works in the same way as for the visual domain. However, when you think about uh, switching between, uh, as you call, as we might now call it in this po- podcast, a smaller auditory window or a larger auditory window. We knew that, that this switching between different windows is definitely something that becomes more difficult when you get older. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether the size can actually be, uh, becomes less over age, but I definitely would argue that switching between them, between a distributed attention and a more focal attention in the auditory domain, is something that would become more difficult over, over, over age. And this is the thing that you just have to keep on doing in order to keep that uh, capacity uh, to its highest quality. So I don't know of any specific training programs, and I'm almost certain that these do not exist. It doesn't mean that they don't work. It's simply that they don't have been part of scientific study yet. I do know that when you want to keep yourself able to switch effectively between a distributed and a more focal type of auditory attention, you should train this. And the best way of training is simply doing it. Yeah. Uh, and if you haven't tried it, if you haven't practiced it in a while, you will notice that it becomes difficult. You will be able to pick up on it and to get it to get the capacity back. However, this would become more difficult when you get older. So everyone who's who's getting into a certain age in which this stuff gets more complicated, I would say it's about forty. Then I would advise you to keep on training it and not stop doing it for quite some time because it might be that difficult to get it back. Huh. So that, I, I find that very interesting. We need to we'll uh, we'll need to lobby on this podcast to get to get some more research done on this this uh, auditory attention field because I'm very curious how to how to keep this. I, like you said, I, I probably the best way is to just continue doing and and maybe maybe listening to music is one way to do that and. Um, even practicing our techniques on this podcast of keeping a, a wide frame and then narrowing in and things like that. I'm curious. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, uh, 
I imagine my mother would probably uh, ask why it's the case that I still, in the prime, if, if, if 21 years old is the peak, I am still relatively close to that compared to my parents. But I seemingly can't see things right in front of me all the time that they can. So maybe... Maybe I grew up poorly with this useful field of vision, unlike most people. <laughs> yeah, there are, there, there are just individual differences. There are some people who generally tend to focus on details, tend to focus on the larger spectrum. And this has, these are individual differences that are reflected almost in personality traits. So some people just are, are primed to focus on details. And some people look at the bigger picture. I'm a bigger picture person. I generally forget the details. Mm-hmm. And this generalizes... <laughs> Not only to fiction, but actually to a lot of things in my life. And I forget the details. I'm only focused on the larger story. So this is then just, just a personality trait. And luckily, we have a lot of variability in the population because this, I think, in an orchestra, you also need a lot of people who have different skills. And there's some benefit of having a tendency to focus on the details. And there's a benefit to having a tendency to focus on the big picture. And we need all of these people in the team, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. I, I I don't know why it is that I can't find things right in front of me, but clearly I. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you one more thing, which is that, and I found this very interesting, not so much for the podcast, but just for uh, our lives in general and, and some of the narratives that surround uh, living in the 21st century, certainly my generation, the, the, the kind of millennial generation, and you mentioned you mentioned the epilogue that the the common narrative of this kind of age of advertisers battling for our attention has led to people having shorter attention spans, being unable to concentrate, all these kind of things. But you you mentioned that actually one upshot of this is that we might be better at guiding our attention, and we. We we're able. I, it, it certainly resonated with my own experience that we're able to block out a lot of the information that's not pertinent to us, like advertisements that are designed to capture our attention. We've developed the ability actually to completely tune these out. So, can you talk about that? Um, I really enjoyed that uh, more optimistic take on on yeah. the age we're living in. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, always an optimistic person, and I think here, I think this applies here as well. Let me just say that there's no scientific evidence out there that our attention span has decreased over the last couple of years. Huh. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's not the case. <laughs> it simply means there's no data to support it. Huh. And honestly, I think that evolution is not that quick. That we now all of a sudden are equipped with different brains than 200 years ago. Evolution doesn't work that quick, right? So mm-hmm. uh, we have the same brains, except our environment has changed. But hey, there's some great news out there. We can we can sort of control our environment to a certain way. So if you start that there are little distractions, I think everyone after a couple of weeks of training will notice that their attention span increases again. And of course, there are training techniques like meditation. There are many ways to uh, to get your concentration span back on track. Um, and we learn. So um, a, a great example here is a phenomenon called change. Uh, sorry, beta blindness in which, in the beginning, when the internet was first out there, um, things that were flashing in the periphery captured our attention, because, yeah, things that flicker in our environment are definitely interesting and capture our attention. 
but those were banners, those were advertisements. So what we've learned over the last couple of years is that we, we have learned to ignore them. So when you now visit a website and there's something flickering in the peripheral part of the website, you generally don't even attend to it that much. You just know, hey, it's a banner and I'll just not attend to it. When there's a pop-up screen, we just automatically click it away. Pop-up screens are no longer effective. Same thing holds for banners. Banners are no longer effective. And so banner blind, this is perhaps not the wrong term, it's a scientific term, but actually a better term would have been banner inattention. Simply because we have learned that if we visit websites and there's very salient, distracting information, we have learned to ignore it because it's probably advertisement. So again, the, we see that there's this learning effect that's relatively quick, takes a couple of years, but, then you, but, but there you have it. And then we see that these banners are no longer efficient. So I'm not all that negative indeed. I think we are well equipped because attention is the solution. If, if we focus our attention on the right parts, we will ignore all the other information. It's just the fact that we have to allocate our attention to the right things. And there we're just fine. Yeah, you know, that's I find that fascinating. I think it's it's it certainly it is true as you mentioned, but it's also a, a great um, way of thinking about how our attention has changed and maybe it will provide some encouragement for people who are daunted by the prospect of listening to an hour-long symphony that in fact <laughs> our attention spans that have haven't changed that much. That's it's just the environment we live in and this is something that we can we can train in ourselves um well and this is an excellent lead-in to uh your your newest book which i have yet to read but i'm very excited to read uh concentration how to concentrate in a world of beeping smartphones channel surfing live tweeting all of these things uh and so i'm very excited to read that maybe uh We'll have to have you back at some point to, to discuss all of sure. these ideas too. But yeah. I want to thank you so much for for joining us today. The, the book is How Attention Works. I found it a fa- fascinating read, and I think it's very uh, pertinent to all of our listeners on this podcast, which which focuses a lot on attention. And I I certainly learned a lot uh, in this discussion today. So, so thank you so much for joining us. Hey, you're welcome. I, I really much enjoyed the discussion as all right, we'll, uh, we'll see our listeners again soon. Thank you so much for joining us, as always. Thank you.